This is Talk on the Wild Side. I'm Rob Smith, and this is the all-natural podcast created to bring you the full glorious sound, taste and texture of the British countryside without artificial flavours, colourings or preservatives. In this episode, water, water everywhere. I've been to Northwood Hill on the Hoo Peninsula, where the mix of farmed grazing land and freshwater marsh is successfully creating perfect habitats for lapwing and redshank. I say I think this is a connoisseur's landscape. Yes, it's flat, but it's very mysterious. It can feel, you can't quite tell where it ends until an enormous ship goes through and it kind of like it's really baffling when that (laughs) happens. And a bit of politics, we get into some hot water with the ding-dong battle in the House of Lords over nutrient neutrality and how unrestrained house building could spell disaster for our most fragile river systems. We've got old Victorian sewage works and, and, and infrastructure trying to deal with 21st century housing numbers and it doesn't work. Ken Wildlife Trust Paul Hadaway also reacts to the recent publication of the alarming State of Nature report, which warns one in six of British species are threatened with extinction. But on a more positive note, we also visit the Fungus Festival at Emmett's Garden, celebrating all things mycological. And they really excitingly kind of pop out of the ground like a little little circle, and then they get bigger and bigger and bigger and expand into this lovely uh, sort of disc uh, where you can see all their gills, and they're just perfection. Yes, from the shaggy ink cap to the flyer garrick, we're going to have some fun, guys. So let's start with the political stuff. The other day I had a great conversation with Paul Hadaway, who's Director of Conservation and Engagement at Kent Wildlife Trust. We met up at Ham Fen, which is that remarkable spot where the Trust released beavers into the wild in England for the first time in 400 years a couple of decades ago. It was a really relevant place for our chat, focusing on two main topics – The State of Nature report, which, to quote the official blurb, provides the most comprehensive overview ever of species trends across the UK. And it doesn't make for pretty reading. Since 1970, UK species have declined by about 19% on average and nearly one in six species are threatened with extinction. And we also delved into the recent government bust-up over nutrient neutrality, with an amendment to the levelling up and regeneration bill being blocked in the House of Lords. It's all over the fact the government says 100,000 homes are being blocked from being built by defective EU laws. Conservation groups said that scrapping the nutrient neutrality rules would in fact be disastrous for our already stressed rivers. Now, you might think this is all a bit technical, complicated, dull even. Well, it's not. Unfortunately, Paul Hadaway is great at unpacking it all and explaining everything in comprehensible English, so it is worth sticking with. I started by asking him to explain why Ham Fen is so important. A real kind of jewel in the crown for us as Kent Wildlife Trust, but also for this part of East Kent, um, restored from um, almost secondary woodland and dried out kind of fenland to this incredibly vibrant, rich habitat you see behind, fundamentally done by beavers. Yeah, because beavers are the sort of like the the, the poster kids, aren't they, of, of what's gone on here. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff has happened as a result of the beavers actually doing their thing for the last, what, 20 years? 20 years. So beavers have been here 20 years. They are an ecosystem engineer. Um, and, you know, people want to understand what that means. They don't have to look around us. We've got 
trees here that were sucking the water out of the peat on this site that are now dying because the site is re-wetting but also because the beavers are sort of engineering that area. New channels created, four dams on this bit of the North Stream which from a water quality perspective is doing incredible work to, to filter out um, pollutants, filter out algae. So all of that kind of diversity, that, that vibrancy that has then given us, um, we've got water vole on this site returning in, in large numbers. It's a, a, a county important site for turtle dove. We have cuckoo breeding here. We have hobby here. We've just had a stork fly over. No, that was amazing. I've never seen incredible. a stork in the so, UK before. Yeah. So, you know, we've got purple heron regularly visiting this site during the summer. So it is an incredibly important site and it fits within this sort of complex of kind of wetland sites that sit in and around the Stour. Okay, so let's talk about the south. There's, there's two big things I want to have a chat with you about. Mm-hmm. One is the, uh, the the state of nature report that's yep. just come out, and the other is nutrient neutrality. Mm-hmm. So let, let's dig into nutrient neutrality first, because I think mm-hmm. as a term, it's just confusing for people who don't know what it means, because nu- nutrients are a good thing, aren't they? We like nutrients, <laughs> and yet there's a massive issue for our rivers because there's just too much of the wrong stuff getting into the exactly. river. Yeah, so... Um, under the old water framework directive, which was uh, the European um, frameworks, uh, the, the directive that, that governed water quality, um, we were required to try and improve the condition of all of our, our water courses. And when you looked across the UK, most of our water courses at that point were failing or recovering condition. We had very few that were in good condition, and that included the Stour. And this is a, it's a historic problem of agricultural runoff of nitrates, nutrients, um, coupled with the boom we've seen in housing development in East Kent and in a few other places nationally, which has seen a massive increase in phosphates. We've got old Victorian sewage works and, and, and infrastructure trying to deal with 21st century housing numbers, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So nutrient neutrality um, was a scheme brought together by DEFRA to, to try and tackle um, that issue. So effectively, there is a moratorium on development in Canterbury and Ashford, until those nutrient issues are dealt with primarily phosphate but also nitrate as well right okay so i just want to clarify that so nitrates is primarily an agricultural problem and phosphates is primarily a sewage problem it's exactly that and this is what makes it such a challenge to deal with um so the impact of, of of collectively of that phosphate and nitrate coming from that new development has seen a massive impact on the Stodmarsh National Nature Reserve, and that is what has driven this this nutrient neutrality scheme. So, if you go to Stodmarsh, and, and you know, many people watching this will know the site very well, this time of year, throughout the summer, you are seeing massive blankets of algae across those those lakes caused by these nutrient levels, and you're getting fish kill, and you're getting a reduction in in other biodiversity. There's also an additional element to this, which is around public health and around people using the river, swimming, uh, canoeing, all those different things, which you know has to be accounted for as well. The solution is, as I say, initially a moratorium on development until those developers can show that they've got schemes in place that are reducing and bringing out or taking out the system out of phosphate that potentially it would add in through through the development occurring. There is a, a complicated calculator that allows you to do those calculations. But what that effectively means is there needs to be investment in the end of pipe solutions, so those Victorian sewage outlets um, and water tra- treatment works that need upgrading. Uh, there is an opportunity to build constructed wetlands within developments which actually clean water through natural processes, through reed beds and, and other solutions before they go into the river. And we feel there is a requirement really to start looking at some arable reversion, some land reversion to natural um, grazing marsh, re-wetted areas on the edges of the stour to help, particularly with the nitrate issue, but also to 
to help long term with locking up some of that fossil Okay, fuel. so there are kind of natural solutions to actually sorting all these problems out and they are already being put into place. Yeah. You look around here and you can you can actually see it, can't you? But recently the government looked to effectively mm. knock that nutrient neutrality agreement out the window with the levelling up and regeneration bill. Mm which would have meant that local authorities couldn't stop any developer from developing where they wanted to. And there was a big fuss around that. Explain why, if that had actually gone through, it got knocked out in the House of Lords. Mm. If that had gone through, what would that have meant? Yeah, so effectively that would have removed that requirement to, to, to deal with those issues. So we would have seen increasing levels of phosphate and nitrate going into into the stale system and so you know that damage that we're attempting to undo uh, at stod marsh and throughout the system would have just been exacerbated and we would have seen greater fish kill greater loss of biodiversity i think that the two things to say on nutrient neutrality are as we've just said it's quite a complex scheme um probably more complex than it needed to be and there are perhaps simpler ways of doing that and potentially there is a greater role for kind of the, the nature-based solutions within that Politically, you've got to look at it that, you know, government making that announcement, it was absolutely shouted down in the Lords, quite rightly. It may still go back to the Commons, we don't know. So it's not an end to that. And it probably arguably is partly a response to the fact that, you know, the the Conservative Party have lost a lot of local councils in the last three or four months. So, you know, this is partly a a sort of play, I think, back to to try and look at that. And it's a return to that horrible kind of anti-growth coalition stuff that we were hearing last autumn, which really did no one any good and was called out for what it was. Okay, so what do you say to a developer who says, look, there's a requirement for building to go on in East Kent. We know that there's not enough houses Mm -hmm. to house the population massive pressure we want to build 2,000 houses here and you guys are stopping us so what do you say to them it's interesting because that's not the conversation we're having the right. conversation is actually the other way in many ways it's developers working with us and I think this again is where what the government is doing at the moment is so damaging because they're not taking account of the fact that on nutrient neutrality and on biodiversity net gain the other mandated scheme that, that um, developers have to account for where they have to do proper Um, mitigation for the impacts of their developments these approaches have been co-designed and co-developed in Kent between planners planning officers local authorities developers and environmentally NGOs government agencies we've been working together for years to make these work so actually for them it's a business as usual approach it's like what is the amount of money I need to set aside what are the sites I can do this on what are the approaches I need to take that's what they want to know to give themselves business certainty and so, you know, the irony is that while there is an attempt to sort of suggest that, you know, it's environmentalists versus developers, which, you know, in the wrong place with the wrong development, absolutely we'll object. And we'll object right the way through the planning system. Swanscombe Peninsula being an absolute classic example of that. Um, but on the flip side of that, you've got to at some point get the best you can out of what is going to be coming down the line and what is actually granted permission. And so it's in all our interest to work together to do that. And that's where I find the government stuff so, so damaging and disingenuous and and just you know wrong-headed i'm going to come on to the state of nature report mm-hmm. in just a moment yep. but as we look over our shoulder here we've yep. got a little footbridge next to us mm-hmm. and uh, on one side we've got beautiful clear water and yep. on the other side yep. is all pondweed and mm-hmm. blunged up yep. is is this what we're talking about here it is it is so this is the north stream attacked by a rush there (laughs) um this is the north stream it's it's spring fed from a a couple of miles up upstream 
uh, and there is water treatment works. Uh, this is in failing condition and you, you can see this is primarily nitrate um, driven but you can see the algal blooms that are growing on this site. What is interesting as you say the footbridge here acts almost like a natural dam. You can see the vegetation dropping off it. As we go further down and we pass the three beaver dams that blow, blow us downstream that water becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. So that again that role of beavers and um, natural processes and actually filtering the water through you know, I won't quite say you can drink it at the other end, but it's certainly a lot more attractive looking than, than this is. And, it's and in terms of what that means for the wildlife and the, for the plant life that's in the watercourse, what does that all mean? Yeah. So again, it's reducing the, you know, this blanketing of, of, of algae is actually what is then causing fish kill, causing invertebrate death, causing all those things. It's just sucking the, the oxygen and the life out of the, out of the river. You go further down, you know, we've got, um, as I said earlier, we've got water vole, kingfisher, all sorts of things back on this site that have returned as the beavers have done their work. And so it's just, it's a water quality thing. It's a, you know, it's much better for biodiversity because there is that reduced um, algal level, uh, reduced nutrient level. Okay. So the state of nature, mm. the, the report's been released yesterday. Yeah. It makes a pretty grim reading, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, grim and, and unsurprising, um, I'm afraid. So when you look down the, you know, just the headline statistics, uh, 20% decline in species since the 1970s, and we can talk about creeping baseline syndrome and the fact that that means that, you know, my reference point as a child growing up in the 70s and 80s is very different to that of my children. Um, you know, the impact that that has in, in our psyche is huge. Um, one in six of our species facing facing extinction, uh, 30% of the population not having access to natural green spaces, which does come back to that developer question again. Um, and only 11% of our land actually properly protected for, for wildlife. And that includes you know, those designated sites that arguably are actually not that good for wildlife either. So in terms of, again, of a government aspiration for 30% of the land being in, in good environmental condition, good condition for nature by 2030, it's clearly not going to happen. Um, and it's really, really I mean you exciting. you are, well you you've dedicated your life to doing this mm. I mean how 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 does it make you feel when you see these fig- figures written down in such a stark format yeah I mean yes yeah it's it's um I won't say it's depressing it's challenging um I think if you reflect on has conservation in the last 20 30 40 years been a success in the UK the evidence says no and I think you have to look at that. And you then transpose that over what we're talking about through our Wilder Kent 2030 strategy, through some of the things we're trying in Kent, through ecosystem engineer species, through you know, the bison project, through this application of nature-based solutions and the understanding that we need to be looking at things at scale and changing how we do things. So move away from protection of small areas to restoration at scale and think about how you do that. That's a challenge on us as much as it is on anyone else to make that happen. So I think you're seeing a, a change in um, the mindset within conservation that's taken a long time to come through. And, you know, we don't like to admit that perhaps things haven't worked the way they should, but the evidence tells us that. And we're evidence-led people. So we've got to follow that. We've got to follow the science. We've got to think about new ways of doing things. I mean, they do say the darkest hour comes before dawn, don't they? Mm. Does, this, does this kind of potentially mark an inflection point then, that enough people are going to get it for... The, the senior levels in big organisations in government to actually go, do you know what, we have genuinely got to change the way that we do things? Because you look around here mm. and you can see that successes do happen. Yeah. Yeah. That, that when you let nature do its thing in a space 
like ham fen, mm-hmm. you do get a remarkable quantity of species just magically reappear again. Yeah. Um, so nature can heal itself, but you have to give it the space to do that. So do you think that we're going to reach that point? Is this that, that point? I think we will reach that point. Whether this is it, I, I think we've got, um, you know, without getting too political, another year of this government to, to continue to do whatever madness it is that they're attempting to do before we can have a really cogent conversation about policy. Um, what I find really interesting, we have a lot of conversations with, with private businesses, quite big businesses, with developers, with landowners and others. They recognise both the, you know, the need to do something around biodiversity crisis, but also the fact that it's linked to the climate crisis. You know, we're here in Kent, we are going to get hit the hardest, the quickest, and we already are by climate change and by everything that brings. It's an additional level of land management challenge, whether you're a farmer, a viticulturalist or a conservationist. You've, you've got to look at how you do business as usual. And I think it's really telling that in the, the kind of world of big business, the protection of supply chains, the insurance industry, people are the ones who are driving this change um, behind the scenes. They're the ones putting large amounts of money into protecting the Amazon basin. And I'm beginning to realise actually needs to be done more at home. You know, there is a, a company not a million miles from here who's investing in this site because they recognise the importance of offsetting their carbon footprint by investing in a site which locks up lots of carbon. So it's happening. And I think as ever with these things, they'll reach a critical tipping point where government will have to, to catch up. Um, I think you just need that, that firm policy basis from which to work. And, and the fact that people have to understand there's going to be some really tough choices and going to be some tough lifestyle changes that have to happen. Um, and, you know, to be the kind of bearer of that news is not always easy and people don't like it. But I think you are seeing that change. So the more examples we can point to, the more that we can demonstrate through doing, the more that we can actually create these sort of slightly different innovative partnerships and be prepared to come together and work together to make these changes happen goes back again to talking to developers and others the bigger the impact we're going to have uh, and that's where we are so it's an exciting space i mean it's the, the most terrifying space at the moment that i can remember professionally but it's also conversely the most sort of exciting so as a, as a final thought then what do you want people to do people are watching and listening to this what do you want them to actively yeah. do yeah. clearly want people to to support organizations like the trust of course we do um and we want people to just be aware that there has to be a political pressure um, born here. It's a really challenging time. We understand that. You know, people are facing all sorts of, of problems uh, across the board in, in terms of just living a day-to-day life. There has to, at some point, be a movement from this sort of stage we're at of, of kind of um, climate denial and climate anger to climate action and, and climate acceptance. And the sooner that we can move people on that journey, people can come with us and understand that, the better. So we need people to support what we're doing, to have that voice politically, locally and nationally. Think about voting around green policies, because actually the idea that green growth and sustainability are somehow at odds with your standard of living are absolutely false. And there is a massive weight of evidence internationally that shows that in other countries. We've just come back from the Netherlands where they do this really, really well. So actually, there are different ways of thinking that we need to, to, to sort of integrate. So, you know, people just have that awareness to educate themselves, to come and talk to us, join some of our walks, do all those things. Well, great stuff. Paul, it's always great having a chat with you. Thanks ever so much for your time today and uh, keep going. Thank you very much. Kent Wildlife Trust Director of Conservation and Engagement, Paul Hadaway there. 
And if you want to get involved, then just search online for Kent Wildlife Trust and you can find out all sorts of information about how you can get involved or even arrange a safari to Ham Fen and try and catch a glimpse of a beaver in the wild. Now, from the far east of Kent, let's magically transport ourselves to the very north, to Northwood Hill, in fact, an RSPB reserve that overlooks a huge sweep of the Thames marshes from Cliff to All Hallows. Alan Johnson is an area manager for the RSPB who's been closely involved in managing the freshwater marshland at Bromhay Farm for over 20 years. And I particularly wanted to talk to him about the way that the RSPB is managing the land by working closely with farmers, livestock graziers, who keep cows and sheep on the marshes. And they're an integral part of the way that the land works. And it's seen a huge uptick in the numbers of lapwing and red shank in particular being able to successfully breed there. We started chatting as we walked up the hill through scrubland dominated by bramble and gorse, which has created some great habitats for nightingales, among other things. And then you suddenly find yourself having a clear view across to the Thames and Essex in the distance. See, I think this is a connoisseur's landscape. It took me a while to get my head into this. I come from Yorkshire, which is a bit more wobbly and kind of hilly. Um, And when I first came here, it kind of I was a bit like, hmm... But now I love it, and I'm slightly obsessed by it. It's, uh, it's yes, it's flat, but it's very mysterious. It can feel you can't quite tell where it ends. I mean, there's a huge, great big river, the River Thames, that's running along the horizon there, um, and you can't see where it is uh, until an enormous ship goes through, and it kind of like it's really baffling when that happens. <laughs> it just sails through the middle of a field. Oh, absolutely. And one of the interesting things is because I uh, I work in Kent and Essex, so I kind of I have reserves on the other side of the estuary from here over in South Essex. And I see the view from different sides. And the interesting thing for me is is that the view from Kent looking towards Essex is there's a lot of industrial use, a lot of uh, port development and, um, you know, refinery-type stuff and the south end over there. So a lot of built development. And then, But if you go over on the Essex side and you look back this way, you mostly see sort of green stuff and trees and kind of open areas and it looks quite different and I think that that's reflected in the scene before us because as this hill drops away um, from this scrubby bit down onto the marshland it is uh, like a kind of you know 180 degree flatness right out in front of us and I know uh, to my own cost that walking to the river from here takes quite a long time Mm -hmm. especially because it's completely intersected with ditches this landscape is completely crisscrossed with ditches. Uh, you always end up kind of like not finding the crossing point uh, at the first attempt. And so it can take you ages and ages and ages to get out there. So you can see how it must have been a bit of a nightmare for uh, the smugglers who used to use this stuff back in Dickens' day. And there's a kind of a, a building right out in the middle of there called Shades Cottage, which is supposedly uh, a kind of like a smuggler's uh, haunt and sort of set up to kind of like help them get ashore and kind of smuggle their goods in. And we've been buzzed by dragonflies as we talk here. And as I look across, we've got a herd of cows. What, there's a mixture of breeds, black and white, brown, pale. Yep. What, what breeds have you mainly got out on the well, land here at the moment? I think some of our reserves, we have kind of like uh, pure Sussex breeds, but that is a very mixed beef herd. So I wouldn't like to put a name to the breed. Very mixed, I would say. But we got some, so we've got some cattle there. We've got some sheep down here. Are they, what, Romneys? Yeah, uh, looks like it from this distance, yeah. It's a very farmed landscape, this. So, um, and a very, 
a very kind of unusual but very man-made habitat so it's you know, as I was saying earlier on, it has its origins in uh, in, in salt marsh. This would have been salt marsh and a saline habitat um, previously. Uh, but since it's been kind of reclaimed from the sea, it's become a freshwater habitat. It still retains some of the features of uh, the original salt marsh in that you've got these kind of deep kind of runnels or rills, as they call them in this part of the world. They call them foot drains in other parts of the country. Um, and that's a really part, kind of important feature, and that's why... Uh, breeding waders like lapwing and redshank really like this habitat because those real features, those sort of surface undulations, hold fresh water. And if that fresh water is still around through the breeding season, uh, then the muddy edges, the muddy margins of those pools are a breeding ground for uh, uh, invertebrates, particularly coronamids, which are non-biting midge larvae. So little kind of, they don't bite you, but they're kind of like small uh, bloodworms that you get in the, in the, in the soil, in the mud. And it's like a crucial feeding habitat for um, for the chicks. So so lapwing chicks, redshank chicks, they're not like uh, blackbirds or blue tits where the chicks sit in the nest begging for food and are immobile. As soon as they hatch, they're kind of like more like wildebeest in that they have to kind of move around and feed themselves oh, right away. So they just are immediately following mum and dad round the mud and exactly. copying what they do. Exactly. And the classic thing... And, and a, it's a really lovely site. And you can see this if you go to a site like Elmley Marshes, for example, and you kind of uh, access the site um, through the main road, as you will see waders on the side of the road in the midst of the grazing marsh with their chicks following, uh, you know, secretively behind them, uh, feeding as they go. OK, so we're going to wander down and get stuck in a foot drain somewhere yep. <laughs> go and have a look at it but the key thing that i really want to find out about is the fact that you're managing to balance the fact that you are farming livestock on this this is this is all farmed land and yet it's also really working well for wildlife and nature yeah absolutely no farmers no wildlife out here it's that simple so I mean, it does. We're, we're just coming into the field with the sheep. But it feels like we're coming into <laughs> into a prison sector. This is it's quite heavily fenced off. This area, isn't it? Is that to keep the sheep uh, in or to keep the people out? What's it? What's this all for? No, it's to keep the foxes out. Oh right. Okay. So, and in some senses, this this fence is a kind of like a, a metaphor for the state of nature. So, in order to kind of give breeding waders like lapwing and redshank the best chance of being successful in this landscape, uh-huh. we've ended up having to do this they're really successful and they work very well uh-huh. um what we've worked out uh, so we've got a big science team in the rspb and we did a big study a few years ago that looked at the impacts of predation on breeding waders uh, and this was in response to some sort of quite steep declines in lapwing and redshank nationally and, and across northwest europe as well and what we worked out is a couple of things one is um that uh redshank and lapwing were regularly um, producing far too chicks in order to sort of like have viable populations. So they need too few. Too few. So they need to produce right. about. This sounds a bit technical, but 0.7 fledged chicks per pair per year. <laughs> right, okay. uh, and that basically means you just need to produce enough babies so that your population um, that you're Space putting out at least balances stable. out natural deaths right, okay. in the population. And if it if it's too far below that, then that population can kind of go down. And, and the populations, and certainly on our reserves, but elsewhere, were kind of regularly below that level. Uh, and but So electric fences are the answers. You keep the foxes out well, and the birds can survive. Indeed, because the science also showed that the 
biggest impact was uh, fox predation. So nocturnal mammalian predation was having a big impact on these populations, particularly where on sites where you've got really focused management like this, you've got quite dense populations. Um, we're moving away from electric fences and just using kind of barrier fences, as we call them. So they're mm-hmm. high enough to keep foxes out. And that's had some quite dramatic effects, positive effects. So okay. um, well, we regularly give me, get, give me some numbers then. I would say that we used to average around about 0.2 fledged chicks per pair um, during the 1990s. And at the moment, we're probably closer to about one fledged chick per pair per year. Okay. So way more than you need. And I can plot on a graph that change uh-huh. in productivity and a subsequent little line for population that also goes up. So it's a really nice, neat bit of science and a nice result from a little bit of infrastructure. So in terms of the, how many acres are we talking about on the site down here? The site here at Northwood Hill is around about 300 hectares. And so 20-odd years ago, how many lapwing were we talking about breeding down here? Well, uh, down on this site, when we originally took it over, there would have been none. Right. Uh, and where I guess in a peak year here, we would be on about 30 pairs of lapwing right. and similar kind of pairs of red shank. Okay, so that's a really... That's quite a significant jump then. It's a significant jump, but we've got some other sites which have been even more dramatic. So Great Bells Farm and Sheppey went from around about one pair of lapwing up to about 50, 60 pairs of lapwing and red shank. And Higher Marshes, which is over there, similar sort of story. I think we had one pair of red shank when we took it over and has leapt up to about 40, uh, 50 of, of each species. So you can get quite... If you get the grazing right and you get the water management right and you kind of install this kind of infrastructure, you can have really dramatic results. So, Alan, we've come down to this part of the field here, and so there's plenty of sheep grazing around, but you've, we've got some strange ditches have been dug out. I mean, well, they're not, not even really deep enough to call a ditch, are they? What, what are they? Well, well, we call them rills. Some people call them foot drains. They're, they're an attempt to recreate the former salt marsh uh, rills that you used to get once a salt marsh has been reclaimed from the sea. Mm-hmm. So this field uh, was salt marsh back in the day, so, um, you know, uh, back in historical times, will have been reclaimed from the sea at some point, grazed for a, a long period of time as grazing marsh, subsequently turned into arable, and at that point, completely flattened. Right. So no topography in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've used excavators and spoil spreaders to kind of try and recreate them as, as authentically as we can. So these ones have only just been dug, haven't they? Because they're bone dry at the moment. They're bone dry at the moment, yeah, yeah. But actually, at this time of year, most things are bone dry. So that's one thing with grazing marshes. It's a freshwater habitat, in inverted commas. Uh, but in sept- August, September, October, and usually into November, it's kind of like bone dry and dusty. It will feel completely different. Oh, we're being, we're being dive-bombed by a... a- a swarm of grey lag geese. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Um, we will. Uh, so this place will feel uh, very different in the breeding season. So if you came in here in May uh, and we'd, you know, had a good season with water, uh, the sound would be less grey lag geese mm-hmm. and more uh, wheeling lapwing, making that sort of weird kind of metallic kind of breeding display sound that they do. Mm-hmm. Piping red shank, kind of the oyster catchers knocking around somewhere. Uh, and it would feel damp, moist, vibrant. There'd be invertebrates flying in the air and birds singing, and it would feel like a proper wetland then. So you really need these these scrapes to be wet 
for yeah. the right times of year for all of that to happen. Yeah, exactly. So I think that the cycle would be that, um, well, these days, I think we'd, we'd be happy if it's still dry at Christmas. But really, you kind of like January, February, you're hoping it's going to get wet. And you want it to be as wet as you can by uh, the end of February so that you've got, you know, really wet conditions and that ideally these rills would spill over a little bit into the fields. How big an issue is it for breeding birds to be in a field with sheep and cows? Do they not just trample on their nests? Well, yeah, so the answer to that is that some positively love it. Mm -hmm. So uh, things like cattle egret, for example, you know, you would imagine they quite like uh, cattle. Being around the cattle. Yeah, Yeah, and that's a species that started to colonise and they they breeded the heronry now behind us. Um, So it produces lots of, I mean, we walked, uh, we skillfully avoided stepping into some cow parts earlier on. (laughs) Um, and those cowpats are a source of uh, food for invertebrates and kind of, you know, it's well known that like bats and other kind of uh, birds and various other things kind of rely on that as a food source. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a trampling issue. And I think that, um, you know, if you have too many livestock in here during the nesting phase of the breeding season, then uh, you, there is a bit of a trampling risk. But you, frankly, you've got to balance that against making sure that this grass sward doesn't get too developed or out of control because these birds are particularly lapwing actually like a quite a short sward mm-hmm. and so if it gets too long they, they just kind of don't like breeding in it really so you kind of need to get the balance right with this stuff so as a final thought then um because this is farmed and you're the rspb is that an easy balance to strike because farmers obviously want to make money out of what they're doing they have to they have to make a living and you're wanting to manage the land for the wildlife how are you striking that balance is that a, an easy thing or a difficult thing to do well it's it's a it's a it, it can be quite difficult it's a bit of a negotiation because i think if you if you want to get things absolutely 100% right for lapwing and redshank then it requires the grazier to do a bit of fiddly stuff uh, bringing animals on maybe at a time that they're not quite happy with or grazing with cattle rather than sheep um, uh, and so it does require some adjustments I think the important thing is is that we need to be kind of flexible with the farmer uh, need to develop a great relationship and you need to kind of um, take that journey together really rather than uh, being uh, you know dictating what you need um, but probably the really important thing that underpins the whole thing is just the is making sure that agricultural subsidies going forward to kind of deliver the right things and target um, uh, you know the right uh, actions for the farmer to deliver so we need to make sure that that works really well and that there's enough money there to support the farmers doing that kind of stuff and is it is it working at the moment or are are we heading in the right direction I think things are a bit up in the air at the moment if I'm honest with you Um, it has uh, there there is sometimes been enough money in the past in the system to deliver what you want and the, the evidence for that is some of the great farms that we have around the Thames Estuary. I mean, if you go to Elmley, it's kind of like a mecca for uh, breeding waders. It's kind of really high densities and it's perfectly managed. So they've managed to kind of make the system work by whatever means over there. So there's some good examples of how it happens. There's a lot of uncertainty at the moment because, you know, obviously coming out of the European Union and changes to the common, ag- coming out of the common agricultural policy and the 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 uh, the new versions of um, agri-environment environmental land management scheme as it's called is kind of evolving at the moment so i think the question the answer to that really is let's wait and see oh, okay. but it is possible to do both you can manage the land productively and be wildlife friendly yeah 100% yeah
Alan Johnson, the RSPB's area manager there. Now, let's change gear a bit. Fly a Garrick, Stinkhorn, Shaggy Ink Cap, Fairy Bonnet. Mushrooms and toadstools hold a unique place in our culture, feared and revered in equal measure. Steer clear of eating death cap or destroying angel if you want to live to a ripe old age. Now, Emmett's Garden is a National Trust property at Ide Hill near Sevenoaks, an Edwardian estate gifted to the nation in 1964. And as well as classic formal gardens, there's a rock garden and a rose garden and a huge collection of Chinese trees and shrubs, underneath it all is a wild profusion of fungus. Now, fungus often has negative connotations, especially for gardeners. In days gone by, uh, you might well regard the appearance of a mushroom in your lawn as a reason to reach for the fungicide, pronto. But our understanding of the importance of fungus to the health of our soils and the health of our planet has come on in leaps and bounds in recent years. And that's why Emmets have started hosting a fungus festival to celebrate all manner of mushrooms and all types of toadstools. I met up with head gardener Ignacio Silva, fungus expert Dr Jassy Draculich and the general manager Chelsea Pettit to find out more about how they're encouraging vigorous life underground to create a more beautiful garden above it. Emmett's Garden is very high up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the highest points in Kent. Uh-huh. And so we have beautiful views, but it does mean it's extremely windy on days like this. We are surrounded by um, 1,500 acres of woodland. So Toys Hill, Scordswood, uh, Brockholt Mount, they are sites of special scientific interest. And that surrounds Emmett's Garden. Mm-hmm. So you have this lovely area you can come and play with your children, and you can see exhibitions, and you can have a lovely cup of tea, but you can also walk into the woodlands from here. And these woodlands are pretty special, aren't they? Because the reason why we're here specifically is to look at the the, the funguses, the fungi. You've got a fungi festival going on. um, And pretty much everywhere you look, you can see a fungus. Absolutely. So we see all the little mushrooms popping up. And beneath our feet are just thousands of miles of fungus, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, which we call mycelium when we talked about um, wood wide web and the interconnectedness of what fungus is doing for our trees and our ecosystem here. But Emmett's Garden has historically had some incredible rare fungus pop up. Now you never know where it's going to pop up. It's something that comes, comes one year and doesn't come the next. But this year, because it's just become very, very wet, we're seeing now all the little mushrooms, small and big, pop up everywhere you look, from our wild meadow to the the lawn. Uh, You see fairy rings uh, and also in the woodlands growing out of tree stumps. So yeah, you can, once you slow down and take it all in, you can really spot all the fungus. Are you you a, a fungus fan yourself then? So two years ago when I had this idea for a fungi festival, I I wasn't particularly in love with mushrooms. I I eat them, uh, I spot them, I think they're great. But once I really understood the incredible opportunity to tell people how powerful fungi are in our world and the things that they're helping us look at in terms of medicine or um, climate change or carbon capture, they're actually really incredible. So now, two years on, I'm much, much more of a uh, fanatic fungi fan. Because it's one of those things I think a lot of people don't realise, the fact that the, the mycelium is essential to all living things without it without this fungus network going on underneath our feet nothing would work 
Yes, exactly. I mean, things things change. We have um, honey fungus and we have a series of talks um, and one of them is on honey fungus because mm -hmm. everyone knows that it's in your back garden mm -hmm. and they think, oh, it's destroying my trees or it's, you know, it's eating things that I, I want to grow and I love. But actually, that's also creating other environments and ecosystems for other things to thrive. So we, we do want to find a way of, of understanding that it's not just fungus on your toes growing in between your toes and it's not just mold on your yogurt. <laughs> Actually, everything beneath our feet, yeah, is very much fed by. The things we see are being fed by the, that fungus that's growing all over, the, all over the world. Brilliant. Chelsea, thanks very much. Thank you so much. Now, as part of the Fungus Festival, there are workshops where you can hear from and quiz experts in their field. And I was lucky enough to get the chance to have a chat with Dr. Jassy Draculich, who actually started out as a plant pathologist. Yeah, so my doctorate is in fungi that cause plant diseases, plant pathology. Mm -hmm. um, but the fungus I work on now um, is a mushroom-producing fungus, which has then led me to become interested in all sorts of mushroom-producing fungi, not, not just the disease-causing ones. Mm -hmm. um, so in that regard, I consider myself now more of a mycologist than just a pure plant pathologist, but a bit of both. Nice, OK. So what, what sparked that interest in the first place? Well... In terms of plants, I was always loving plants, and I'm sure lots of your listeners will also just love plants. They're fascinating, the way that they you know, come, up, come up against all sorts of environmental challenges with such beautiful and intricate biology. They can't run away, but they, they get by. Um, I love plants, but then the things that could you know, alter and manipulate plants, I found even more challenging and interesting, and that really just sparked my curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I first of all worked in agricultural diseases and obviously that's very important because we need to feed people and anything that detracts from the yield you could get from your crop is an important thing to study and to try and control. But then I got a job at the Royal Horticultural Society and I started looking at plant diseases from a very different lens, mm -hmm. looking at plants as objects of beauty and character and contributing to a sense of like purpose and place more than just their commercial value. Um, and so, yeah, looking at honey fungus, which is the most prevalent disease that um, the gardeners face in the UK, according to the Members Diagnostic Service, trying to help people to preserve and save and replant their gardens. These are their own private sanctuaries mm -hmm. and these, these plants are very important to them emotionally. And we get letters in from, you know, me and my husband planted this tree together. He died last year. The tree seems to be dying now. What can I do? And it becomes a lot more... Yeah, meaningful and, and emotional. Um, so yeah, you really see the character and the beauty in the whole system that you're dealing with from the sort of work I do now. Also, people don't want to use harsh chemicals in their gardens um, for the wildlife benefits. They want to try and work with the biology that's there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and with fungi, we definitely, there's this, there's this thinking among people, sometimes gardeners, not always, but humans generally of, I can control this. I can, you know, closely manipulate the situation so that only what I want to happen happens. Mm -hmm. But actually, you can't do that with biology. You need to embrace what's there. My sister has a nice phrase. If something isn't eating some of your plants, you're not part of the ecosystem. Right. Um, and that's definitely true for gardens. Okay, so here at Emmett's, and we've been wandering around and having a look, and there's all sorts of different toadstools and mushrooms mm -hmm. popping up all over. We've seen yeah. some fly agaric, oh, we've beautiful. seen some uh, bolitos, and we've seen some puffballs, and we've seen a whole bunch of different things. Um, it, the more toadstools and mushrooms you see, the healthier your soil is. Is that true? On the whole, yes. So honey fungus is a pathogen. It does attack healthy plants. So if you see honey fungus mushrooms, they're the only mushrooms, I'd say, that I would be thinking, hmm, 
you know, there's there's something here that is going to be detracting from my garden. Everything else is going to be a beneficial. But even in even honey fungus can benefit a woodland. Uh, in woodland environments, we don't think of it as a disease-causing organism. It picks off really the weak trees mm-hmm. and creates a nice gap, and then other things come up in the gap. So that's just part of the cycling. But gardens, you don't really want to cycle out your lovely mature hedge or yeah, your beautiful rose bushes that are in their prime. Um, so yeah, trying to think about how you work around that system is really what I'll be talking about today. And so when you're, you're talking to gardeners, what advice do you give them? You know, if they do have a, a fungus turns up, I guess if it's not honey fungus, yeah. leave it alone. Exactly. Don't just leave it alone, but celebrate it. Get to know it. Um, if you can find out what it is and understand what it's doing, you'll have an even more positive relationship with that fungus. And tell your friends. <laughs> why, why is fungus important? Well, the big category of fungi that I think are really underappreciated are the saprotrophic fungi. They're the recyclers. So they break down dead material, particularly woody material, which no other like kingdom of life is able to do. Um, they have these enzymes that can break down that really tough cellulose um, and pectin and, and lignin inside of wood, which other things can't do. So they kickstart that recycling process. And as they do it, they release nutrition. And then other plants nearby can benefit from having more resources in the soil. And other wildlife can come and carry on that recycling process. So your little, your wood lice, your detritivores, larvae from flies, all sorts of things. Um, so yeah, the, the saprotrophic fungi are super important for recycling. And it's one of these slightly odd things that it's really only in the last few years we're starting to properly come to understand that at all. Yes, I think people really haven't t- talked enough about fungi ever. And most of the fungi that we have on Earth haven't got a name. And as our habitats get more and more like f- fragmented, we could well be losing these fungi that we don't even know what they are yet and what they're doing. Um, so as people are waking up to the fungi that are in their gardens, I really want people to appreciate the ones that we have already, the native ones that appear naturally of their own accord, rather than thinking, oh, fungi are great. In order to celebrate them and promote them, we have to add new ones and especially adding things that have come from outside of the country. And as a, a final kind of thought, what, what do you... What do you think of this place? Yeah, it's a lovely damp day and there's some massive beautiful trees around and I can see the leaf litter and when I see leaf litter I just think of all the different fungi because there's uh, there's fungi that are in those leaves when they're alive then when the tree loses those leaves and they fall to the ground those endophytic fungi, that means living inside of the leaf tissue they start contributing to the humus and the soil layer and it's just like a whole layer of from you know, giving the living leaves and the living fungi back into the recycling sphere and yeah, it's a nice stage of transition not just for the plants but for the fungi too now i've just spotted nestling over here oh, what beautiful. have we got here so that is a mycena pura which is the rosy bonnet so it's one of the bigger mycenas the mycenas are the fairy bonnets they're like these little pointy capped ones and this has got a nice pink upper cap with a pale pink straight up and down quite narrow stem or stipe um, and yeah, so that's another saprotrophic fungus and they are quite common. There's a similar one that's quite, that's a bit smaller and more purple. Um, and yeah, these are really nice ones to, to spot in a sort of broad-leafed woodland environment. And as we're looking around here, because the more you look, the more you see. So there's, yep. is that a different species? Is that's that the, the same. That's the same. Yeah, so you could just see the point next to the leaves. If you brush them away, you see that you've got about three or four centimetres of stem. And then there's a little baby one just next to it as well. And yeah, if you ever want to take any photos to identify, send these in to people to identify, really getting down to this kind of this, the ant level, brushing things away and taking a photo of the whole thing is what you want to do rather than just looking top down because you need to see the colour of that stem, the length of it, the thickness and if ideally even the gills underneath.
and a real basic question is there any kind of meaningful difference between a mushroom and a toadstool I think of it as a, as a cultural thing. So within folklore and things like that, certain people would say that toadstools are more mythical and some people would categorise toadstools as poisonous mushrooms, but actually it's just it's just a word. It doesn't have a biological kind of grouping as such uh-huh. yet. And I know it's probably a really unfair question because you're a doctor and you are, you, you've got a, complete, <laughs> a huge knowledge of all of this kind of stuff. Do you have a favourite? Is there is there a particular one that, that just makes your heart light up when you see it? Well, I mean, the last time I did see the Fly Agarics, I did scream out loud with delight, but I don't normally think of it as my actual favourite. Um, some of the some of the really weird ones, so there's a blue one uh, called the Blue Roundhead, a Strafaria species. I've only found that once, and I've got a lovely little necklace, like a miniature one in a bell jar, and I just think blue is such an unusual colour. Um, and, yeah, those fungi, they, they do look a little bit otherworldly, so I'll, I'll go with the Blue Roundhead for today. Well, but, I'm going to tell you that you can treat yourself in a minute then, because there are some fly agaric just up around the corner. Uh, I try not to scream again. (laughs) Now the man who has responsibility for maintaining the beautiful gardens at Emmett's is head gardener Ignacio Silva who came to the UK from Spain a few years ago and I had to ask him what he felt about the idea of actively celebrating fungus. Well I embrace mushrooms I mean they are um, very important as a gardener they um, Mushrooms, they are mycorrhized plants, and uh, that means uh, 90% or more of plants are mycorrhized by fungi. This is symbiotic associations, where the plant and the, and the fungi help each other uh, for, with nutrients, uh, with, uh, water, uh, with water as well, um, in periods of drought. Uh, and they also help uh, to degrade organic matter. That's very important in gardens, because, for example, by making compost, Fungi only with bacteria are very important. So all this organic matter need to be need to decompose, mm-hmm. so to be incorporated. Because, incorporated so so essentially, what you're saying is, if you've got mushrooms, then you know that you've got a healthy fungal root network going on, and if you've got that, that's good for the plants. Well, mushrooms are in most soils. What we see or identify as mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of the mushroom. But mushrooms are in most, most soils. Uh, a healthy soil, a gram of healthy soil, can contain up to 100 meters of IFI, which IFI is basically the fungi itself. It's mainly uh, these uh, fine threads um, that join each other. That, that's the real body of the mushroom. When they fruit, what we see are the mushrooms, those, those tools itself, yeah. And as I say, so they're a good thing to see. It's a healthy sign if they're there. Exactly. And, as a, and also they add as a bioindicators. For example, in trees, depending on the fungi you have, uh, it's indicating the kind of rot this tree might, might have. Mm-hmm. If it's, uh, for example, chicken of the boots, which uh, is quite well known for many people, uh, it produces a dry rot, a white dry rot. It means uh, that the tree might look healthy and sound, but is susceptible to snap suddenly, especially in windy situations. Others, like um, there is the beefsteak fungus or Fistulina hepatica, that one produces the same white rod by helping the tree to reach an uh, older age by making it hollow. It's like a, a scaffolding uh, pole. It's hollow because it's stronger um, than if it were solid. Are there any that you see and you think, oh... I don't want to see that one. That that means there's trouble. Yes, uh, honey fungus. Mm. 
However, it has a it has a function ecosystems of getting rid of weak individuals, weak trees and plants, and uh, also degrading them back into the environment, recycling them. But in a garden situation, uh, it means losing some individual plant, well, some plant that may be special, mm -hmm. and then uh, the management of the of the site uh, has to be done in a different way, just to avoid it uh, spreading into the garden. And because I know you don't. You don't regard yourself as an expert on fungus, do you? But I, I guess you kind of have to really <laughs> know what you're talking about when you're managing a site like this. Yeah, well, gardening is not just uh, plants. It involves soils and uh, all, all how, how everything works work together. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's, it's, let's put it like a garden is an artificial ecosystem and everything, especially uh, in regards to conservation, mm -hmm. everything has to work together. How, what we do with the soils impacts the, the health of the soils and hence the, the, the health of the plants. So there you have it. Healthy plants need healthy soil and healthy soil needs healthy fungus. So celebrate your stink horn and say three cheers to the chicken of the woods. Many thanks to uh, Ignacio Silva, Dr. Jassy Draculich and Chelsea Pettit. And if you want to go and see Emmett's Garden for yourself, you can find out all about it on the National Trust's website. Now, we're actually almost at the end of the podcast for this month. But before we go, a couple of things. Um, we know that a general election is going to be happening at some point before January 2025, most likely next autumn. But after the recent party conferences, all the political parties are getting into campaign mode. And Kent Wildlife Trust is in the forefront of a campaign to encourage all of them to take nature more seriously and to put the environment at the heart of their manifestos, calling on them to take five things into consideration. Priority number one, bring back the UK's lost wildlife. Immense pressure from decades of pollution and habitat loss has driven wildlife into catastrophic decline. Priority number two, end river pollution and water scarcity. The UK is ranked as one of the worst countries in Europe for water quality, with pollution beyond legal limits caused by a toxic cocktail of sewage and agricultural pollution. Priority number three, fund wildlife-friendly farming. By supporting farmers to shift towards regenerative, nature-friendly methods, farming has huge potential to deliver a green rural renewal. Priority number four, enable healthy communities. More than a third of the population, nearly nine and a half million households in England, are unable to access green places near their home. And priority number five, tackle the climate emergency. Climate change is driving nature's decline and the loss of wildlife and wild places leaves us ill-equipped to reduce carbon emissions and adapt to change. Now, if you want to get involved and lobby your local politicians, then go to the Kent Wildlife Trust website, kentwildlifetrust.org.uk, and you can find out all about the campaign there. And finally, a round of applause for Kent Wildlife Trust overall, named as the Animal and Environmental Charity of the Year at the Kent Charity Awards. Charlotte Lewis of Kent Wildlife Trust said, it was an honour to be recognised for all the incredible work our staff and volunteers do at Kent Wildlife Trust to create a wilder Kent. On top of that, Kent Wildlife Trust has also won the Biodiversity Protection Award at the National Sustainability Awards for the Wilder Bleen Initiative and 
Ken Wildlife Trust won the Environmental Charity of the Year at the London and South East Prestige Awards. I mean, really hogging the limelight, eh? Is any of it actually deserved? Well, apart from projects like the Wilder Bleen Initiative, Next Door Nature, Wild About Gardens, Education, Volunteering, Conservation and Advocacy, what has Kent Wildlife Trust ever done for us? <laughs> That's it for uh, Talk of the Wild Side podcast for this month. Once again, I've been Rob Smith and this has been a Wild Rover Media production. Hope you've enjoyed yourself. I certainly have. And until next time, do go wild in the country. <laughs> <laughs>